0: All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter five and Acts chapter 16. Matthew five and Acts 16. As you're flipping that direction, this is not an easy one today, all right? Uh, We are gonna talk about addressing the unfair, all right? And we are in a city where I'm telling you, we address the unfair all the time. But to do it in a Christ-like manner uh, is something that is very, very important. Now, I wanna say this before we even get started, okay? The government's business, is to help things be fair as much as democratically possible. For Christians, it's a different road. Our goal is Christ-like perfection. The government will never achieve Christ-like perfection. Amen? It's not possible. It's not a Christian government. In fact, even governments that have mostly Christian people, it's not a Christian situation that they're in. you got to know that what we are called to as disciples is different than what the government is called to. This is not a government issue, this is a you issue and a me issue. we got to address the way that we address unfairness. Are you ready? If you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 38. Uh, By the way, just as we get started, we're going to attack this from the other direction to get started. Has anyone ever done something that was above and beyond for you before? Anybody ever? Has anyone ever done something that was above and beyond for you before? Uh, it's interesting because as we address the issue of unfairness, we also need to realize that the scales don't always balance, and even though they don't balance uh, in our favor always, sometimes we receive so much more than we ever could have hoped for. Sometimes we receive great grace, great mercy, great blessing when we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. Um, there have been many times in my life that I've I've experienced this, uh, and I'm the type of person. If you do something for me that truly is above and beyond, I have a vivid memory with those things. I think a lot of people, a lot of us, are that way. But you remember very vividly when someone does something like for, that for you. But nothing like when my father was passing away. Um, there was a stretch where it all started with my father offering great mercy, uh, with him offering great blessing that was so far above and beyond. Uh, we had booked my dad to come and pray at the Capitol, but also to preach revival at our church. And I'll never forget. Um, dad called us, said, "Hey, this is a week before the revival." He said, "The cancer's back; it's everywhere," and uh, he said, uh, "Doesn't look like I am going to live much longer." He would end up living uh, about uh, twenty-five days after that phone call. And uh, I remember, I said, "Well, we'll cancel the revival." Again, in fairness, we'll cancel the revival, and uh, we'll uh, we'll move in another direction. We'll head down to Texas to see you. And my dad goes, "Like heck, you will!" He said, "I am coming to preach." Now, just for the record, he didn't want to miss out on that chance to pray at Congress. He didn't want to miss out on preaching the revival, but he also wanted to see the miracle. He knew that that would pour into me in the greatest of ways, and he, again, through physical pain, fought his way up here to be here. There was a church in Virginia uh, that helped us buy flight tickets so that my family and I could go back and forth to be with him uh, during those last weeks of his life. My friend Jason Blacklock, uh, the week before Easter, week before my dad passed away, saw that I was a wreck uh, and in rough shape. My family was staying back in Texas so that we didn't have to buy as many flights. But Blacklock black boarded a plane at his own expense, bought a ticket last minute, flew in with me so I wouldn't have to be by myself. I mean, that was something I did not earn or deserve, but he gave it so willingly as a kind and loving friend. When people go above and beyond for us when we don't deserve it, we truly feel it on every level. Jesus is about to highlight that for us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Now here's what's interesting. A lot of times these passages here, it's two passages that are preached separately, but it's all a part of the same thought that Jesus is having. Here's what it says. Jesus says, you've heard it said that it's an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Stop right there for just a minute. Jesus starts off the whole discussion by saying that the world is built on a transaction, that you basically have these scales of justice where, again, if an eye is taken from you, you are allowed to take an eye on the other side. If a tooth is taken from you, you're allowed to take a tooth on the other side. These are transactional relationships that we have with the world. But look at what he says next. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other, also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward is what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet more than the others, or if uh, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Now this is where we get the the point here. Do not even the pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. What Jesus has to say here when you read it the first time you go so if somebody hits me I'm supposed to let him hit me again? So if somebody steals from me, I'm supposed to just let him have everything? What Jesus is saying here is the difference between fairness and Christ-like perfection. He says if you truly are about the father's business, the stuff is just stuff. The body is just a body. And as far as the world goes, the government is about trying to develop fairness in society. But for believers in Jesus Christ, we are about the Father's business. We are about his goals. And here's what's weird. He says, when we offer grace and mercy and patience when the other side doesn't deserve it, it causes the reward for us to be in heaven. It causes people to look inwardly and to try to figure out why we have behaved in such a way. If you're taking notes, write this down. Very little lasting life change comes from a transactional relationship. Mercy, love, patience and faithfulness are a different story the idea here is again if we truly are about the father's business it cannot be something that is transactional in nature Um, it begs the question how does the disciple address the unfair in a christ-like manner and that's what we're going to tackle today i'd like to ask us to stop for just a minute and to spend some time in prayer just one second if we could bow our heads with head bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. Father, we thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. We thank you for the way that you bless us. God, we love you so much, and we are so grateful to be yours. Lord, I pray as we go through this study today that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us strength as we navigate. And God, we can't wait to see the things that you have on the horizon. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 16. Now let's flip over that direction as we address the big million-dollar question today. How does the disciple address the unfair in a Christ-like manner? Paul is going to do this like a master in the passage that we are about to read. Here's what it has to say. So we start off with what we've read last time. It's going to start off with Paul being treated deeply unfairly uh, in the passage that we're about to read. Look at what it says in Acts 16, verses 20 through 24. It says they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and they're throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs that are unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I don't know why these men are Jews. It starts off with a racial slur. It's a Roman city, and it starts off with them going, you know what, these guys are Jews. They don't do the things that we do, and all of a sudden they've divided the crowd into two separate groups. The problem is, we find out in the passage we're going to read today, Paul is a Roman citizen. Paul is a Jew by religion but Paul and by culture, but Paul is a Roman by citizenship, meaning that they can't treat him the way that they are going to treat him in these next verses. Verse 22, it says, the crowd joined against the attack on Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten, Underline stripped and beaten, that was against the law, and they had been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully upon receiving such orders and he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stock. Stop right there for just a minute. I thought when I've read through this the first time, Paul's a Roman citizen, what they're doing to him is illegal. If I'm in that circumstance, I am holding up my Roman citizenship card and going, I'm a Roman citizen, don't beat me. You can beat Silas, I guess, but leave me alone, all right? Now here's the picture. Paul did not do that, and Paul is smart, real smart. For some reason he chooses whether it's called by God or because the crowd was so worked up into a mob frenzy, he doesn't hold up the card, he waits on that for a moment and is able to prove his citizenship later. But right here, he goes ahead and he takes the hits. Now this is not going to be a popular thing to say, but I'm just going to tell you anyway. We're not talking about fair, we're talking about Christ-like perfection. If you're taking notes, how does a disciple address the unfair in a Christ-like manner? Number 1, take the hits. Take the hits. Now, some of you go, that's against every reason that I moved to this city and that I've come to DC. I want things to be fair. When it comes to your relationship that you have with others, with you lead blocking for someone else, be as fair as you possibly can be. But when you are being persecuted specifically for the sake of the gospel, Paul takes the hit even though he didn't deserve it. And before you sit there and go, well, that was great for Paul, but I don't know if that's great for me. There also is another person in Scripture who does that that's pretty famous, and his name was Jesus, all right? He took the hit that he did not deserve because he was taking our place and he was lead blocking for us. If you're taking notes, write this down. With the power and authority over all the universe at his fingertips, Jesus willingly submitted himself to humiliation and unimaginable pain. With the power and authority over all the universe at his fingertips, Jesus willingly submitted himself to humiliation and unimaginable pain. There are some of you in this room today who have gone through a relationship difficulty where someone in your life has been struggling, and I'm telling you, you're married to them, or you're dating them, or they're your best friend, or they're your coworker, and they have wronged you in a deeply terrible way. In fairness... Is it right to wrong them the same way that they've wronged you? Or to force them to try to atone for something that they cannot ever atone for? In order for you to move forward in relationship with that person, in friendship with that person, in fellowship with that person, you have to offer mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Otherwise, it's over. The picture from Jesus himself Is it's not fair, but Christ like perfection is offering grace and mercy in the name of Jesus Christ at your own expense when you don't have to. It doesn't mean being a doormat, and Paul's going to give us the path and have to not do that in the, in the passages to follow. It's not being a doormat, but it is knowingly and willingly saying, I could rake you over the coals, and I am choosing not to. I have taken the hit unfairly, and I receive it knowing that the Lord is still going to do great things in our friendship and relationship. It begs the question, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? If we're really honest, the answer for most of us is no, I'm not. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? I played uh, football back in the day. And I played weak side linebacker as my main position, but they forced us all to play offense because half the practice was offense, half the practice was defense when I was growing up. And so I had to play fullback, which was the non-glory back position. It meant I was too small uh, to play on the offensive line and I was too slow to be a wide receiver. And so fit perfectly as a fullback. And uh, as a fullback, the play that you loved and hated was 42 lead, anything with lead in it. Because lead meant that you as the fullback had to run through the hole and your goal was to basically plow into the linebacker, delay the linebacker just long enough that the tailback could run past you and it hurt every time so badly. And you just run in, at full speed you're running, that linebacker sees the fullback and makes a hop step and a jump so that they can run at you and I'm telling you, it is a collision of collisions and the win for the fullback is if the linebacker's delayed just long enough that that tailback can slide off your your right rear end cheek and then run into the end zone the saddest part about it is after you've done the lead block you're on your back usually the tailbacks in the end zone and everybody's cheering for them while you're like yay we scored right (laughs) we did it right when it comes to unfairness when you suffer for the sake of the gospel you're the fullback you're lead blocking for the work that god is doing in paul's case what happens in Acts 16 is him lead blocking for Riverside Christian Church in Philippi. He's lead blocking for this new church that's trying to get started and off the ground. If you're taking notes, again it addresses that question, addresses that question, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Now look at Acts chapter 16, verses 35-37, through 37, and we're going to find out why. After that beautiful story that we had last week about uh, uh, the miracle that happens, where the, uh, there's an earthquake in the jail cell, the jailer and his family come to Christ, we then get the passage of how to walk through this unfair conflict uh, that spawns forward. Can I tell you what else is kind of interesting about this? Uh, we walked through with our staff, this is last week, and uh, Pastor Wayne came up and said, you realize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr used this as one of the passages to outline the marches uh, that he was a part of. The way that Paul does this is so masterful. It is upper division. It's master's level uh, that Paul does here to navigate unfairness and how you bring about life change. Look at what happens. Take the hits is the first part, but now look forward at verse 35 through 37. And here's what it says in Acts 16. It says, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order, "'Release those men.'" Underline, officers, uh, because this is interesting. Release those men. "'The jailer told Paul, "'The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. "'Now leave. Go in peace.'" But Paul said to the officers, underline officers again, "'They beat us publicly without trial.'" And even though we're Roman citizens and they threw us into prison and now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, don't miss this. The history is what makes this so powerful as a template for us in navigating the unfair officers. The literal translation of that word is sergeants. Matthew Henry says the sergeants were, quote, the men with the rods. The sergeants or the officers are the ones who had beaten and stripped Paul and Silas, humiliated them and hurt them in the public square. So all of a sudden, the magistrates go, "You know what? These guys are from out of town. They're not Roman citizens, but we really didn't do this fairly. Let's just throw them out. Send, them, send the officers over there so that it scares them, and let's get them out of here." And Paul, even though the jailer, the one who's sympathetic to the faith, looks at him and says, "Hey, uh, uh, they're going to let you go. You guys." Just got to get out of town all of a sudden paul whips around looks straight at the ones who, who beat him and he says hey uh we're roman citizens i'm a roman citizen and what you did was unlawful now remember the culture transactional it's an eye for an eye roman culture what paul has just said to him is i can have you beaten if i want to you wrongfully beat me Full letter of the law, if I press a suit, then you have to get beaten the same way I was beaten. Not only that, but he said to the magistrates, I can sue the city, and because you mistreated a Roman citizen and you wrongfully tried me, he looks and says, I can also sue you, and you know what, Riverside Christian Church of Philippi can get a new building, how does that sound, right? No, what Paul does is so powerful, it's Christ-like perfection, it's not fair, it's Christ-like perfection. Paul looks at him and says, how about this, you wronged me. Walk with me. Just march with me. Walk with me. I want you to come and take me out of the cell yourself. What he's doing there is offering grace and mercy and peace when he does not have to. That's not fair. It's Christ-like perfection. Amen? We forgot that at some point as a church in America. We forgot that Christ-like perfection was the aim and not fairness. We are about fairness for others. But when it comes to us, we take the hit because of Jesus. Because he took the hit for us, we have to be willing to take it. And then, if you're ready for this, number two, how does the disciple address the unfair in a Christ-like manner? Take the hits. And number two, have a conversation. Have a conversation When Paul says, no, let them escort us out, the way that you read that without understanding the law is you read it and you're like, Paul's like, yeah, you're going to escort me out, blankety blank. All right, that was Denver's words, not mine from this week. (laughs) You're going to escort me out because you owe me. That's not what Paul does. Paul says, I could sue you, but I'm not going to. He says, I could have you beaten. The scars I'll carry for the rest of my life, he says, I could have you scarred the same way, but I'm not going to. He says, come have a walk with me come talk with me. Now listen, grace and mercy change a person's heart. Transaction doesn't change anybody. We've forgotten that. Transaction doesn't change anybody. When it's fair, Jesus goes, even the pagans are fair. He said, even the tax collectors at some point are fair because they don't want to get sued. So what do they do? They interact this way, but when someone says the scales are tipped, I got the raw end of the deal, and I know it, I understand it, and I am all full looking you in the eye and offering you mercy, when we do that, it is is Christ-like perfection. Don't get walked on. Let them know I am paying this debt for you, and I'm doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, um, write this down if you want to. And some of you lawyers, I'm not trying to cut into your business here, all right? So just, just know that as you read it. Prefer conversation over litigation. Let me say that again. Prefer conversation over litigation. Now there's some of you like Zach, I gotta eat, all right? I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. There is time for litigation. But if when you have a problem at work, you got a problem at home, you got a problem with the HOA in your community, you got a problem with someone in your family over inheritance, look at me. Don't go straight to litigation. The Christian has a conversation first. It's Christ-like perfection. You go straight to litigation, there's sometimes it's the only way. But for believers in Jesus Christ, it's not the first way. We don't prefer the litigation to the conversation. If you're taking notes, you can write this down too. Paul's goal is not to punish or humiliate his persecutors or even to elevate himself himself. He's letting the city officials know that the Christian faith is reasonable and not erratic. Let me say it again. Paul's goal is not to punish or humiliate his persecutors or even to elevate himself. He is letting the city officials know that the Christian faith is reasonable and not erratic little side note, by the way. If any of you ever just like, Zach, those go so fast and they're so long. You can always like, pull your cell phone up and take a picture if you want to. It's a little secret. A little secret some of you figured out. You can do that if you want to. Or you can go back to the live feed and you can watch them there. They're always on the live feed too. So uh, anyway, all that to say, Paul's goal is not to humiliate them or elevate himself. He's letting the officials know that the Christian faith is reasonable and not erratic. You realize there have been no Christians in Philippi. And the Christian church starts... And when it does, they don't know anything about Christians except at this point that they've caused a stir because some woman who was a slave that had no rights in that community, that her owners are angry. You realize that what Paul has done here has actually, by him being merciful, they've addressed the cultural issues that are taking place in that city, they've addressed the value of a human life with this woman, should she remain possessed by a demon and making money for her slave owners instead of being set free uh, and, a, and a, a productive member of the societal group? Or uh, is he, uh, is he uh, uh, teaching them that the Christian faith is something uh, that is helpful, that this group is there to help and to not stir up trouble and cause riots within the city? What I find to be so interesting about this is having a conversation seems like the weak move and yet it is the most powerful move in pursuit of lifelong change. It begs this question. Do you address unfairness in a reasonable state of mind? Do you address unfairness in a reasonable state of mind? For me, I don't know if you're like this, When I'm in a situation where it's unfair, that's as unreasonable as I get. I get so angry when I get the raw end of a deal. Paul has the presence of mind here to see that the gospel is front and center and that he is suffering for Christ, not for himself, not so that he can be lifted up, not so that the church will be famous, but so that his God will be famous, so that the people will begin to truly change. And then we get to our final verses in Acts 16, verses 38 through 40. Here's what it says. It says, The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, look at this, they were alarmed. Now, there's a politically correct way to say that, isn't it? They were alarmed. I guarantee it was a little bit more than that. It says, They came to appease them, and they escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. It says, then they left. Now stop right there for just a minute. A lot of cool stuff happened in this little part of the passage. The word makes its way back to the magistrates, and they go, oh, crud, they could sue us. They come back and they go, they were Roman citizens. How did we not figure that out in the midst of this process? So they go back personally, and Paul says again, take a walk with us. It says at that point they go, would you be willing to leave the city? We demanded it earlier. Now we're requesting it. Now I love this about Paul. This is not being a doormat. Paul then comes back and says, I received the message that you've offered, and we're going to Lydia's house for church first, and then we will leave the city. It is our choice whether we stay or whether we go. We have received your request, and we're going to go do what we were doing in the first place when you wrongfully imprisoned us. We were headed to church. We're going to go celebrate with them, and then we'll leave town. Don't you love that? Paul here is saying, full well, eyes locked, we are giving you grace and mercy when you don't deserve it and we're doing it in Jesus' name. And here's the deal. We're going to worship and then we will hear your request as another human being and we will move forward from there. What Paul has done is planted the seeds the seeds of heart change to take place in the life of this jailer. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does the disciple address the unfair in a Christ-like manner? Number one, take the hits. Number two, have a conversation. And number three, seek a change of heart over an instant victory seek a change of heart over an instant victory instant victories balance the scales change of heart is when someone sits there and goes why did they do that for me nobody does that for people in my world nobody does that why would that Christian do that for me it's the only way we see the world change they have to be able to look at us and know we're different, that something deeper is driving us. If you take your notes, write this down. Are you ready? Once again, a disciple desires to see their persecutors find salvation over obliteration. Let me say that again. Once again, a disciple desires to see their persecutors find salvation over obliteration. You ever mowed the yard before? Mowing the yard's great, isn't it? It's a fun thing. Some of you love that, and you are sick people. No, I'm just kidding. Now listen. You ever mowed the yard and you came across a patch of weeds? Can I tell you what an instant victory is? Yeah. Just mowing over that sucker, you know what I mean? Makes you feel good, it's gone, and you just mow over that thing. Can I tell you the problem with mowing over a weed? You win the day, and you lose the year, all right? Because when you mow over that weed, it's got seeds all over it, and you scatter those seeds all over the yard, and one mowed over weed turns into a 100, all over the place, I'm telling you, and you'll spend the rest of your days pulling those weeds and doing so much work trying to keep that yard looking good. You keep mowing it over, but you take the time to pull it, you get down on your hands and knees, if it's that big old stalk, you ever seen the big old stalk that grows? I mean, you got to get those, like, brush cutters, cut that thing. you got to get gloves on because you don't want to get stuck in your fingertips. But you take the time to really pull that weed. you got to get it up by the root. And when you do that, it starts off as a big old hole in the middle of the yard. But guess what? It's not going to spread any longer. Listen to me. Mercy, grace, Christ-like perfection pulls the weed, and it causes peace in the yard. We forgot that, and we just started mowing over each other. Whoever's in charge, we just mow over each other, and that can't be the way. It can't be the way. You pull the weed, and it causes the rest of the world to look and go, man, they put in a whole lot of time. It must have been really, really important to them. And then they start to address themselves introspectively, and we see genuine change take place. It begs our final question today. Is your motivation to elevate yourself or to glorify God? Is your motivation to elevate yourself or to glorify God? I love you guys so much and I'm so proud to be your pastor. If we can figure this principle out, we will see God do amazing heart change in our city. If we don't, then we're just gonna see a whole bunch of weeds strangle out any peace that the Lord could provide. You gotta take the hit. You've got to have the conversations, be willing to walk with people who've hurt you. That's hard, isn't it? You've got to be willing to walk with people who hurt you. The Apostle Paul did it. King David did it. Do you remember when Saul, uh, when the King Saul was pursuing him? What does David do? He's got him dead to rights, cuts off the edge of his robe. And then finally afterwards, when David could have killed him, become king, David has the presence of mind to realize if I mow over this weed, just other weeds are going to spring up. Someone in his house is going to assassinate me when I become king the same way that I assassinate him. So he stands in a field, waves the robe, and says, hey, Saul, have a conversation with me. I'm not chasing you. Why are you chasing me? And do you remember what happens? Saul, who has built a raiding party to go and kill David, all of a sudden goes with grace and mercy that's been given to him. He goes, David, is that you, my son? Do you remember? He says, my son, to the man that he had brought a raiding party to murder. How does that happen? Because when grace and mercy are offered when they're not deserved, it causes someone to look inward. And they see their own shortcomings and sin. And then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they see Jesus. Is your motivation to elevate yourself or to glorify God? I love you guys. Let's bow our heads for prayer.